It's so good to be together worshiping our Lord together this morning. Uh, again, if you are visiting, uh, my name is Pastor T. I'm one of the pastors here at Anacostia River Church. And on behalf of the entire church family, I want to welcome you again and thank you uh, for joining us in worship this morning. Uh, we've come to that point in the service where we hear God speak to us through his word. And we're going to be continuing our series in Luke's gospel, which we've called Getting to Know Jesus, which is really the aim of preaching through this gospel. And if you're visiting with us this morning and you forgot your Bible or you don't have a Bible, if you just raise your hands, one of these brothers in the aisles will be happy to supply you with one. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please take this one. Write your name in it. Make it your own. Uh, it's a gift from us to you. We would like nothing more than to know that God's Word is in every home and being read throughout the city. And so if you still need one, keep your hands up. The guys will, guys will bring you one. Amen. Everybody have a Bible? Good. Well, turn with me to Luke chapter 9. We'll be thinking about Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 46. If you're new to the Bible, uh, Luke is in the New Testament. So you open the Bible about halfway and flip to your right a little bit. You see Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. Uh, and we're in chapter 9. When I say the chapter number, that's the large number on the page. And when I say verse number, verse 46, that's the small number on the page. So we're in Luke chapter 9, large number, verse 46, small number. And we're going to be working our way all the way through Luke chapter 10, verse 24. Now, by way of introduction, let me just sort of back up. We're coming up to our anniversary, our first year anniversary as a church family. Amen. Amen. The Lord has been gracious and kind. When the Lord started allowing us to dream, the, the sort of dream that's Anacostia River Church, uh, he, he pressed a particular book of the Bible onto our hearts. And that's a little letter written to a guy named Titus. And from that book, he sort of pressed into our, our hearts what we call our five M's, sort of five strategies or objectives or aims that we get from the book of Titus that we think if we are faithful to, uh, go a long way in helping us to be a faithful church. Uh, the first M is the message of the gospel, that we want to be committed to, dedicated to spreading the message of the gospel. The second M is showing mercy. That we want to be a community of believers inside the wider community of Southeast D.C., showing mercy to our neighbors and friends. And interestingly, next week we'll look at the Good Samaritan and we'll be thinking a lot about biblical mercy. Well, thirdly, we also want to multiply, right? We want to multiply the number of gospel preaching churches throughout the city and throughout the country. And we want to multiply the number of men who are committed to leading such churches uh, as elders and pastors and so on. So uh, we would understand the Bible gives us a, a, a charge to train others who will likewise teach others. So spread the message, show mercy, support the multiplication of, of churches and leaders. Number four, uh, anybody know pop quiz? All right, maturity. We want to support the maturing of believers. We want to make disciples and be the kind of disciples who, who make disciples. And so that we all grow up into the fullness of Christ. And number five, we want to send missionaries. We want to send people with this gospel beyond the borders of our own neighborhood, even to the ends of the earth. So that's who we are as a church. That's our kind of five M's. That's part of our DNA. That's what we feel called to do. 
And in our text this morning, what we're going to see is the Lord Jesus Christ instructing his disciples, particularly in that first and that last M, in, in spreading the message of the gospel and sending missionaries. Jesus is traveling with his uh, disciples. He is training them on how to carry out the mission once he is gone. And he's instructing them in a couple things in particular that I want to bring our attention to. Number one, he's instructing them in the attitude that they should have as his disciples spreading the message. So we're going to see four attitude adjustments in verses 46 to the end of chapter 9. Number two, he's instructing them in the actions that they should take as his disciples spreading the message. And when we look at Luke chapter 10, verses 1 to 24, we're going to see five actions that Jesus um, commits them to in carrying out this mission. We'll see the four attitude adjustments, the five actions, and finally, we're going to see the one aim, the one purpose for which Jesus adjusts their attitudes and instructs them in their actions. And these same things, beloved, apply to us. Applies to any church that wants to reach its neighborhood and its city for the sake of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us and then we'll work our way through this text. Father, we give you praise and thanks for what you have laid out for us here in your gospel, in your word. We thank you for inspiring Luke to write it. We thank you for preserving it through the centuries. We thank you that you have left it for us as a meal, as a feast to be devoured and to be enjoyed. And you've left it to us as wisdom and instruction. Father, we pray that you would make this more than a passive moment between preacher and people. That, Lord, in the preaching and in the hearing, there would be engagement. There would be a leaning in. There would be an absorbing, a, a grabbing onto, a holding onto. Your word, its truth, its power, its beauty. Help us, O oh Lord, we pray. Change us, O oh Lord, we pray. And use us, O oh Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing we want to consider are these four attitude adjustments that Jesus uh, sort of does with his disciples as they are um, learning how to be on mission for him and how to spread the message of the gospel. The first attitude adjustment is there in verses 46 to 48. We might put it this way. He, he sort of turns them from pride to humility. From pride to humility. Look at verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Now, verse 46 is interesting because it comes after verse 44 and 45. Verses 44 and 45, Jesus has just been talking about his being taken up, about his being crucified, his going to Jerusalem to die on the cross for the sins of the world. So it's striking when you come to verse 46 and you read an argument broke out among them about who's going to be the greatest. 
Verse 45 tells us they didn't quite grasp the gospel, the implications of what Jesus was saying. And so verse 46 sort of shows us what's really in their hearts right there. They're, they're, when I used to play basketball 60 pounds ago, we'd go to the, to the court, play a pickup game. You walk out on the court, first thing you ask is, who's got next, right? And this is the argument they're having. Who's got next? Uh, all of them want to be Muhammad Ali. I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. I'm a bad man. You know, they're all sort of in line for the throne, as it were. Now, what must be true of your heart and my heart if we're going to argue with anybody about who's the greatest? I mean, to even get into that argument, you, you got to have some level of pride, don't you? You got to be feeling pretty good about yourself, way too good about yourself, given that we're all sinners, right? You know, and so you're, they're looking at each other, and so, you know, Peter, like, James, you ain't the greatest, I'm the greatest. Thomas like, Peter, you tripping, man. I'm better than you. You know, and on and on and on it goes. And, and when you play it out, it's rather childish, isn't it? It's proud and it's childish. It is what happens on playgrounds and basketball courts. Notice what Jesus does. Almost as if to say that this is childish, he takes a child. And he puts the child by his side. And he effectively says this, you know what? The greatest be like this little child. And that's striking because in the culture of our Lord's day, children, children didn't have a lot of standing in society. They weren't greatly valued in society. And so he was, in a very real sense, taking what was thought to be the least of persons in society. And he tells them that, no, this is the one who's going to be greatest. Those who become like little children, he would say in another place. But notice now why it's the case that being like this child would make you greatest. You see what he says there? Verse 48, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. In so many words, Jesus is saying the message is greater than the messenger. Even if the message comes by a little child, the Lord Jesus says, I offer myself to you in that message. And anyone who receives me receives the Father. You see the chain there? The, the messenger comes, but he's not the main thing. Christ is preached. He's the greater thing. And Christ brings with him knowledge of and relationship to the Father. The messenger is always lower than the message. This is so helpful for us to remember, beloved. In a day and age where we idolize preachers and we think about this guy's gifted and that guy's gifted and we become like the Corinthians, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, and what does Paul say? Paul and Apollos are nothing. It's about Christ and the knowledge of God. And the great thing is to be that kind of guy who isn't boasting in his verbal prowess. He isn't boasting, boasting in his preaching ability. The great thing is to be the kind of guy who boasts in Christ, who boasts in the Lord, who praises the Savior. And, and as we sang a moment ago, who, who lifts him up and lifts him up high that he might draw all men to himself and that through Christ all men might be reconciled to God. That's what's really important. And this is why he checks their pride. The message is about to be lost in their arguing about who's greatest. And if that argument goes unchecked, 
what they're going to offer the world is more of themselves rather than more of Jesus. And this is the way with fallen men. We love ourselves too much sometimes. And we exalt Christ too little sometimes. And when our Savior trains disciples, when he trains us, he turns us from that pride of first place to this humility of making ourselves less than the message and less than the one that is preached in the message. That's the first adjustment that he makes here. Notice the second adjustment that he makes. He turns his disciples from a kind of tribalism to cooperation. You see that there in verses 49 and 50. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Now consider what just happened here. They, they see with their own eyes a man casting out demons. This is not a report. This is not a rumor. They see it happening. They notice a good thing happened, and they notice that it happened with the right motive. He was casting out demons in Jesus' name. And they look to stop him. The question is, why? Why on earth would you look to stop someone who's doing an obviously good thing for an obviously good reason? Why would you stop someone from doing the work of the Lord? They tell us, don't they? You see there at the end of verse 49? Because he does not follow with us. You see what they did there? They raised their group, they raised their clique, they raised their tribe above the actual work of the Lord. They, they were unable to recognize God's work going forward because the main thing in their mind was whether or not he was with us. They were being tribal, right? And beloved, we have all kinds of ways of being tribal, don't we? There is black and white, a kind of ethnic tribalism. There is rich and middle class and poor, a class tribalism. There is reformed or Armenian, a theological tribalism, right? There's urban and suburban, a kind of, you know, geographical and subcultural tribalism. There's male and female. We get tribal about that too. And then we stack them together, right? So I'm black, reformed, urban, and Democrat, right? <laughs> and if you don't sort of tick all those boxes, then you're in trouble. You're not, you're not with us, and boy, there's no way you can be doing the work of the Lord. You're a suspect, right? We have all these shibboleths. We have all these, uh, that, that, we have all these tests for who's in the right tribe, right? Who can say the word correctly and therefore prove that they sort of belong with us. And the main thing becomes whether they're with us rather than whether they're with Jesus. And in the case that the church is just so tribal, don't get me wrong, there are good, necessary, right distinctions. There is such a thing as truth and error. There is such a thing as a true gospel and a false gospel. And among that, we don't hesitate to draw a dividing line and to separate ourselves from. But no, beloved, this tribalism is occurring among people who name the same Christ, love the same Savior, and are called to do the same work. But because they're not with us, we're not with them. It's to our shame. It's to our shame. 
about a year ago, Pastor Matt and I had the privilege of attending a, a meeting of uh, Christian pastors and uh, organization leaders here in this side of the city. And, and we went to that meeting. It was an interesting meeting. It was an eye-opening meeting. We, we saw a lot of things. We thought, wow, okay, that's interesting. And, and, and I think it's fair to say there probably wasn't anybody in that room that was in our tribe. And we left the room and we were driving back and we were reflecting on the meeting and thinking about some of the personalities and some of the things that were said. And, and it occurred to us that nobody in our tribe would have been caught dead in that room. But in that room were men and women who've been laboring in this part of the city for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Who've been endeavoring to represent Christ and his gospel long before Anacostia River Church was ever thought of who were doing, I trust, the best they could do with what they knew. And Christ asked the question, why would you stop them? If they are not against you, then they're for you. And there's something tricky about that statement, right? That, that's easier for us to hear. If they are not against us, then they are for us. And if we're not careful thinking about the pride that lurks in the human heart, we begin to think, oh, well, then the problem is they just need to come closer to us. But what if we flip it the other way? If we are not against them, then we are for them. Can we say the statement both ways? If we can't, there's probably some tribalism in our hearts and it's probably going to get in the way of us seeing the work of God being done by people other than ourselves. And what a tragedy that is. Because pretty soon we'll discover that tribalism leads to a smaller and smaller tribe. And it also leads to a deeper and deeper doubt that God is at work because we can't see beyond ourselves. If we're going to do the work of God, then Christ is going to remove this tribalistic spirit from us. But notice number three, it's not only going to turn us from pride to humility, it's going to turn us from tribalism to cooperation, as we saw in those verses, but he's also going to turn us from vengeance to mercy. From vengeance to mercy. Look, look there in verses 51 to 56. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the apostle did not, or excuse me, but the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. Now, just a little context. The Jewish people of our Lord's day had nothing to do with the Samaritans. The Samaritans were regarded as a kind of ethnic and religious half-breed. They were part Jewish and they had Gentile ancestors as well. They were regarded basically as unclean by religious Jews. And so there was no kind of social interaction between Jews and Samaritans. So it's striking that Jesus sends his disciples through a Samaritan village with the instruction to prepare and to stay there. But now the Samaritans had their own problems too. If, if Jewish persons had prejudice in their heart, at least in this text, the Samaritans were, were nativists, right? They had this idea that if you, if you weren't from Samaria and you weren't going to stay in Samaria, but you were going to go to a God-awful place like Jerusalem, then you need to keep moving, right? 
So if you were Jewish in Samaria, you were either uh, changing your loyalties or just passing through. They're natives. They're nativists. They probably had a politician that says, I'm going to build a wall and make it tall. It'll be a great wall. I'm sorry. (laughs) Sort of. Sort of. But the people didn't receive Jesus. We're told why, right? Verse 53. Because his face was set toward Jerusalem. What we really want to get here when we think about how Jesus trains and addresses the attitude of his disciples is what happens in verses 54 to 56. Because the Samaritan reaction is one problem, but the disciples' reaction is a whole other category problem. You see what they say in 54. Look, uh, Jesus, shall we call down fire on these people and consume them? There's a vengeance there, isn't there? There's a punishment there, isn't there? There's an impatience and and an unmerciful condemnation there, isn't there? And some translations that will go on to say, or some texts that will go on to say that Jesus replied to them, you know not what spirit you are of. I have come not to destroy life, but to save it. And we're reminded of what James says in James chapter 1, verse 20, aren't we? That the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And here they are in a, in a manly, fallen, sinful anger, wanting to call down judgment upon people who have refused Jesus. That's not our spirit, beloved. We go into the community, we engage people, and if people reject Christ and they reject us, our reaction should not be, Lord, judge these people. Judgment will come soon enough. God will call to account all those who continue in their sin and reject him. And that will be a great and terrible day. But while it is still day, our job is to announce the good news, that there is a way to escape the coming wrath of God. And our job is not to finally pronounce a condemnation, but if if it is the case, as it is here in that last verse in the section, our job is in mercy to just keep moving. You see that the text says, and they, and they went on their way. There's so much mercy bound up in that. Especially compared to this notion of, of vengeance and calling down fire. Now, I wonder if you can see something. And if you combine pride and tribalism with the power to exact vengeance, it is deadly. And if you bolster that with religious zeal, it is almost unstoppable. Isn't that what we're seeing with ISIS? Pride, tribalism, destructive vengeance. Not so among Christ's people. Before we can be of any use to our cities and our neighborhoods and our neighbors, we've got to have this attitude adjustment where we are turned from pride to humility, where we're turned from tribalism to cooperation, and where we're turned from vengeance and anger and wrath to mercy and kindness and love. Otherwise, the gospel won't ring true, and we'll be tired of telling it. Notice the fourth adjustment. The Lord turns us from security to sacrifice. 
from seeking security to making sacrifice. Notice there in verses 57 to 62. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And what's striking about this text, in one way or another, each of the three persons who say they will follow Jesus, they, they want to follow Jesus with some measure of comfort. So apparently the first guy who, who volunteers, I'll follow you wherever you go, he must have thought Jesus was going to at least some, some nice place to sleep. Because Jesus responds in verse 58, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. That's just striking on a thousand levels. Number one, here is the creator of the universe homeless in his own creation. That's humility. That's sacrifice. He divested himself of all the glories and privileges of heaven. The inner creation. Homeless. Number two, this is striking because, yeah, to follow him is going to be to follow him into the very kind of life that he's living. Christ didn't come contrary to the preaching of so many prosperity preachers. He didn't come to make us rich. He didn't come to bring us fabulous homes in this world. He is preparing for us a place in his father's mansion, but that's not here. And if we would follow him, we're going to enter into the kind of sacrifice that sometimes gives up home and the safety of home just as some of you have left cushier places to move into a neighborhood that many of your friends would say, boy, it's rough over there. Why? The only good reason to do that is not because the real estate is cheaper. The only good reason to do that is because Jesus said, go, to be on this mission. And notice the, the, the others want comfort too. So in verse 59, uh, Jesus calls a man to follow him and he says, let me first go and bury my fathers. The scholars commenting on this text uh, suspect that that has something to do with getting his inheritance. Let me first go and get what my father has left for me since that other dude is going to be homeless. I'm going to have some money, right? I'm going to follow you broke, right? And the last guy, he just apparently wants the comfort of family and relationship. Let me, let me go and say goodbye, farewell to those at my home. I mean, what you get out of all of this in addition to sort of comfort seeking is a kind of non-committalness, right? Not exactly committed to going right now, dropping everything and following Jesus. And yet that's exactly the adjustment that Jesus wants to make to turn them from seeking this kind of security to actually sacrificing those things in order, notice, to advance the gospel. You see what he says to the, to the second guy there? Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And then he says to the other man, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for what? The kingdom of God. What's at stake, beloved, is the kingdom of God. And what's causing that not to be preached and not to be entered are the cares of this world. 
You remember just a couple weeks ago we were in Luke chapter 8 and our Lord told that famous story about the parable of the sower, the seeds. And you remember that, that seed that fell on thorny ground? And he explained in the parable what that was. It was those who heard the word. But then the cares of the world, riches and pleasures, those things like thorns choked out the word of God. And so they were not fruitful when it came to hearing and obeying God's word. Beloved, isn't it the case that even today so many, so many people, even so many Christians, find it difficult to follow Jesus because we find it easy to love the world? What does James tell us again? James chapter 2. Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. We can't love the world and love God. We'll hate one and love the other. And here's the thing, as James tells us, this world and all of its pleasures and all of its delights is passing away. It's God who remains. And so the wise man counts this no sacrifice at all. They count it as gain. They, they speak as Paul speaks when he counts everything as lost, when he counts everything as rubbish compared to the excellency of knowing Jesus Christ, compared to sharing in his suffering and the fellowship of his resurrection, compared to proclaiming Christ. Paul counts everything lost, everything rubbish. And that's the attitude Christ would work in us. As he turns us from security to sacrifice, from vengeance to mercy, from tribalism to cooperation, from pride to humility. And it's with that humble, cooperative, merciful, self-giving attitude that we best advance the gospel of our Lord. And so as to reach our city, those are the kinds of things that I think our Savior would want to produce in us. And the question is, are, are we willing to let him? Are we eager to let him? Are we asking him by his spirit and his word to do this kind of work in our hearts? Or are we going on in his mission, not even examining our hearts? Now, the best gospel work is going to be done first in our hearts. And from the abundance of that heart is then that we proclaim best the gospel of our Lord. My friend, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, you're sort of listening in on a conversation between Christians about how we can get our hearts right to talk to you. I hope you understand that we think the biggest difficulty is not your heart in that conversation, it's ours. How we respond to you. And, and I want to offer on behalf of Christians everywhere, though I have no authority to do so, I'm going to do it anyway. I want to offer on behalf of Christians everywhere an apology for the ways we have gotten it wrong. The ways we've kind of just thrown up on you or called down fire on you, it seemed, or thumped our Bibles and thumped our chests. And, and um, in those ways, we are, not, we are not representing our Savior and our message best. So we apologize for that. But here's what, here's what I want to encourage you to do. Don't let Christians keep you from Christ. Our best efforts to talk with you, we, we, feel, we feel the insecurity. Trust me, we, we feel like this is the hardest thing we do is try to tell you about Jesus when you in so many ways often say you don't want to hear it. But you're here this morning, so I guess there's, there's some level in, in which you want to hear the message this morning. Here it is very simply. Christ 
has come into the world, the Son of God, to prove God's love for you. And he proves God's love for you and for us in this. He dies on the cross for our sins. Now you've probably heard that phrase before. Let me tell you what's happening when he dies on the cross. God the Father who is holy and angry because of our sin, he's punishing his son in our place because of our sin. So all the fire from heaven that these guys wanted to call down prematurely, it is coming. His judgment is coming because he's holy and he's righteously angry with you and me for our sins. And if we don't have someone to turn away his anger and to satisfy his righteous demands upon our lives, then we're going to meet him not as our father. We're going to meet him as our judge and he's going to be a perfect judge. And listen, beloved, there is no plea. There's no argument. There's no case we can make that excuses our sin against God. We will be guilty. And we'll confess it because all the things will be open before us. And the result of that judgment of guilt is everlasting judgment in hell. But Jesus has taken our place because he loved us. He laid down his life for us. He accepted the judgment that we deserve. And God, having judged his son in our place, proves to us that his son's sacrifice was enough, that it was effective. And the way that he proves that he accepts that sacrifice is he raises his son from the grave three days later. He raises him to life. And and in raising Jesus to life, he says to the world, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is my son. Listen to him. This is my son. Believe in him. And he calls to all the world to repent of their sins, to turn away from a life of sin apart from Christ. And to put their faith and their hope and their love in Christ as their personal Savior and God who takes away their personal sins and provides to them personally a perfect righteousness. Because Christ never sinned, but obeyed God in our place. That's the good, good news. There's a way to escape the coming judgment. His name is Jesus. And everyone who believes in him will be forgiven their sins, declared righteous in God's sight, and live forever in his love. If you're here and you're not yet a Christian, you don't want to let any Christian stand in the way of you hearing that message and believing it, and receiving that Jesus who offers himself to you, and receiving the God to whom Jesus will bring you. Today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your heart. Do not turn away in unbelief. Do not get distracted. Believe on Jesus. Trust him and you will be saved. The Lord adjusts our attitudes, beloved, in those four ways. But then number number two, he gives us five actions then for reaching our communities, for reaching our neighbors. It's not enough that we just kind of have the right attitudes. We've got to do some things. And there are five things here in chapter 10. The first thing is that we have to pray earnestly. We have to pray earnestly. So look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 10. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. So this is like his advanced team going into the neighborhoods, doing the work of evangelism. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. 
Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. The first great work of Christian evangelism is done on our knees. It's done with a bowed head and a closed mouth. It's done in prayer. The first thing we have to do is earnestly seek the Lord that he would supply laborers. The problem isn't that there's no harvest. The problem isn't that there aren't people ready to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The problem is it's too few, it's too few laborers. Too few people doing the work of evangelism, going into the community, telling people about Jesus. And this is why I love the, the Saturday morning evangelism that, that happens uh, with, with this church family. The, the many of you who, who come out on Saturday mornings, meeting at the Richard's home, praying, looking at God's word, and then going door to door, going block to block. And this is why I love the stories that I hear of the many of you sharing the gospel with people in your workplaces, trying to establish relationships or, or holding evangelistic Bible studies in your workplaces. What's striking about verses 1 and 2 is Jesus calls these disciples to pray earnestly that the Lord would send workers and then he sends them out as the workers. In a very real sense, Christian, when we pray this, we are also the answer to the prayer. Right? There's no way of being a faithful Christian without at least being a stumbling evangelist. We don't have to be perfect evangelists. We don't have to be clever. We don't have to have all the answers. We don't have to be smooth on our feet and, and quick-witted and, and ready with an answer to every question that somebody has. Remember the example that Jesus used of the great evangelist. It's the child. He put a child beside him and said, this little child speaks of me and people receive me. They receive the father. And surely all of us can be like children, trusting the Lord unworried about what we don't know, but really consumed about who we do know and telling others in the power that comes from prayer. So let us be people who are marked by earnest prayer so that the harvest, which is plentiful, would actually be collected, would actually be reaped, and the storehouses of God's kingdom would be to the overflow with those who are being saved. Pray earnestly, number one. Number two, go meekly. Go meekly. He's done all these attitude adjustments, and, and those attitudes, I think, are kind of uh, crystallized, if you will, in verses three and four, where there the Lord says, go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Uh, you see, he sends them out like lambs in the midst of wolves. Uh, well, that's a real picture of danger, isn't it? You know how the wolves snarl and they bare their fangs and they, they sort of move forward in that crouching, predatory stance and they've circled up the lamb and you get the sense that this lamb is kind of in the middle, kind of, do lambs bleat or those goats, bad, or sheep, whatever. They, they're in the middle, they're in the middle kind of bleeding and, and with no defenses. That's the thing about lambs. They have no natural defenses. And everything that is a predator is stronger than it is. And Christ takes these people, us, whom he has saved by his own blood, and, and he sends us now not into some safe house somewhere tucked away, away from the rest of the world. He doesn't send us to a monastery. He doesn't send us to some isolated island. He sends us right into the midst of wolves, right into the midst of danger. In verse 3, he says, don't even take anything with you. No knapsack, no money, no food. What's he saying there? 
I will supply for you. I will provide for you. In this training mission with his disciples, he is committing himself to guarding them in the midst of danger and providing for them in the midst of want. And there's an interesting change when you come down to Luke chapter 22 around verse 35. When the Lord is about to be crucified and he's sending them out on their mission, he's there with them in this check, in this text, Luke chapter 10. But, but now he's about to be ascended near the end of the gospel. And he says, you remember when I told you not to take a knapsack, not to take money, so on and so forth? Okay, now get your knapsack, get your money, get your swords and sell them and go and spread the message. And so now we cooperate together as a church. This is why we give, and and this is why we take the resources that we give, and we do things like buy Bibles and buy tracts, and and we do things like show mercy to our neighbors, for now Christ has instructed us to use what we have to advance this message. But we go meekly, not as an act of warfare. We go as an act of compassion. We go like lambs, still trusting our Christ and cooperating with each other. And this go here in Luke 10, isn't it echoed at the end of Luke's gospel and the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 28? Go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing, teaching, and so on. This is a command that falls upon every Christian. There's no way to be a Christian and not be a goer, at least across the street at least to your child's bedroom, at least to your co-workers, and maybe to the bottom of the earth. There's no way for us to be faithful to Christ and not having prayed earnestly and not also going meekly to bear witness to his love. Which brings us to number three. We pray earnestly, we go meekly. Number three, we seek peace. So you see there beginning in verses, verse 5, whatever house you enter first, say peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will, re- will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you and remain, and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. You see there in verse 5, this seeking the people of peace, verse 6. That's what we're to be, is ambassadors of peace. Why? Because our Savior is the, is the Prince of Peace. We're coming bringing shalom, bringing wholeness, bringing blessing to those that we come to. And sometimes we'll come to houses that, that don't return or receive that, that peace. But other times we'll come to those that do. And the instruction here for them on this short-term trip is that they are to dwell in such homes. They are to remain there, uh, eating and drinking whatever is provided. And he explains, for the laborer is worth his wages. There is a, a way in which those who receive us and, and those whom we receive, we share in all good things together. That's part of the wages of the gospel, the wages of gospel preaching. That very verse gets quoted again by Paul in, in 1 Timothy when he's talking about... Um, when he's talking about the, the right of, of, of those who, whose work is the word to receive their, their pay from the work of the word, right? And so we go, and we look for people of peace, and we let our peace rest upon them. We don't hop from house to house. Why does he say that? Well, I think he's sort of trying to guard against the impression that the Christian evangelist is, is simply a moocher, right? 
It's not quite what he's talking about there. We're not, we're not sort of hopping from house to house in southeast, praying on people and taking what they have. And, and we meet many people who think, I don't want to go to church because all the preacher wants to do is ask for your money. Beloved, I don't want your money. That's too little a sum, given what we're talking about. What, what we want is your soul. And there's nothing that you can give in exchange for your soul. There is no value that you can attach to it. What we're talking here is not, you know, the paper, you know, folding paper or anything like that. What we're talking here is about whether or not we spend eternity in hell or whether or not we spend eternity in heaven. Whether or not we suffer God's unending judgment or whether we receive his unending love. Don't give if that's a concern for you. Don't give your money. Give your heart, give your soul, give your life to Christ. And everything you have will follow. And what we're after is your following Christ all the way into his glory. And so we, in peace, don't want what anybody has. We want you to know our Savior. All right? And so we, we come to your home, we knock on your doors. If you're here as a consequence of us knocking on your doors on Saturday, we, we, I hope you found that we came bringing peace. And I hope you find that in this family is a celebration of peace. So we go in in peace. But number four, we preach boldly. We preach boldly. Heal the sick in it and at home and say to them, or in that city, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now notice in verse 9, it's Jesus who determines what is preached. The kingdom of God has come near to you. We preach the kingdom of God. I don't get to preach what I want to preach. I don't get to make up a message for you. I don't get to be clever. If I'm faithful, then all I do is deliver the mail. All I do is tell you what Jesus has said. And what he tells us to announce is that his very own kingdom is right here with you. It's right here near you. It's in this message about his crucifixion and his love and his resurrection. And it's and it's, and it's near as even your mouth. If you would confess him and enter into it. And he says now, but whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. You see the boldness here. You go to a city and the city doesn't receive you. Well, you don't slink out of the city. Jesus says you go stand in the street. You go stand in the street and you proclaim the kingdom of heaven is near. And then you proclaim these woes. That little word woe there, that's a word, a favorite word of the Old Testament prophets that meant what he was about to say was a judgment. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Capernaum. Woe to you, Anacostia. Woe to you, Simple City. Woe to you, Deanwood. Woe to you, Lincoln Heights. Woe to you, all the cities of the earth, if you reject this king, if you will not repent. And beloved, that is not in contradiction to the mercy that we've been talking about. That is an act of mercy. 
to warn people about the coming judgment of God, to warn people about the woes that will be visited upon people and cities of this earth if they reject Christ the King. There's nothing more merciful than you should warn a man to flee a burning house. There's nothing more merciful than you should snatch a man uh, from in front of an oncoming train. And that's what we do in gospel preaching when we preach the truth about God's judgment. It's not out of self-righteousness by God's grace. It's not out of a sense of vengeance by God's grace. It's simply telling the truth that God is angry against sin. And if we don't repent, we are stuck in our sins and we will suffer his judgment. But the kingdom of God is near we will repent and believe. Some of the most popular preachers today are preachers who make a big deal of never talking about sin and judgment and hell. That preacher is not your friend. Any man who will not deal plainly with you about the state of your soul is an enemy of your soul. Any man who will not tell you about the real dangers of a real hell and a coming judgment is proving himself to care nothing about you. Even if all the while he's telling you sweet things and how wonderful you are and how great you can be. Don't believe him, beloved. For the message about Jesus to be good news, we must understand the bad news. And the bad news is God is a God of judgment. The good news is we can escape his, his judgment through faith in his son. And you hear preachers say, woe to you for sexual immorality. You hear preachers say, woe to you for stealing. You hear preachers say, woe to you for laziness. You hear preachers say, woe to you for anger. Woe to you for abandoning your kids. Woe to you for stealing. You hear preachers say, woe to you for disobeying your parents. Woe to you for disobeying your boss. That preacher is proving himself to be a friend to you because all those things and a thousand things more will condemn a soul to hell. We break the law at one point. We are guilty of breaking all God's law. And God will not wink. He will not turn a blind eye. He will simply ask if we have trusted his son who takes away his wrath and pays the price for our sin and gives us righteousness. Or if we have rejected him and therefore rejected God. Receive Christ. Believe in him. Be saved. And Christian, when we go out, let us preach this message boldly to those who receive it and those who reject it. Notice it's the same message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Christ doesn't sort of tinker with the message. Well, if they're kind of hard-faced and they get kind of angry, then, well, you can say this. No, you say the same thing. The kingdom of heaven is near. God has visited us in Christ. Receive him and live. That makes evangelism really easy, doesn't it? We just have one message. God only has one sermon. It's Christ crucified and resurrected. And if we know that, we know everything we need to know in order to see our neighbors come into his love. Preach that message boldly. And remember this, beloved. Sometimes what looks like opposition in the beginning ends in a melted heart and friendship and eternal life in the end. Don't stop at people's faces. Don't stop at their initial reaction. Preach boldly and trust Christ to do the work. Which brings us to number five. Pray earnestly. Go meekly. What was number three? 
Seek peace. Number four, preach boldly. Number five, rejoice greatly. Rejoice greatly. This is what we see when we come down to verses 17 to 24. The Lord Jesus sort of gives us three reasons to do this with a glad and happy heart, to do this rejoicing. And there's nothing so strange as an unhappy evangelist. There's nothing so weird as a, as a, grunts, a grumpy gospeler, right? But notice what he says here. The 72 return with, return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now notice, they're real happy about what they tried to prevent the other guy from doing. You see what I'm saying? They, they tried to stop the other guy from casting out demons. Now they have him, man. Look, demons are subject to us in your name, and they, they're glad, and why not? Well, you know, that's, that's real power. But Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. That's, that's big time, isn't it? I've given you all this authority and all of this power, and that's glorious. Verse 20. Nevertheless, number one, do not rejoice in this, in all of that power and that demonstration of, of miracle. Don't rejoice in that, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What could be sweeter than that? You heard it as Christina read Revelation 20 earlier, verses 11 and 15, the, the opening of the books. And in the books are names written. That, that if we are Christ, then, then that symbol there is, is that God has, as it were, written our names in the Lamb's book of life, right? And, and that compared to the demonstration of miraculous power, the greatest thing is God has written your name. God knows your name. God cherishes your name. And in Christ, God has written your name in his book. And, and nobody's got an eraser big enough to erase your name from his book. And Jesus says, you want to rejoice? Rejoice in salvation. Rejoice that Christ has rescued you from the judgment to come. Rejoice that you are not Bethsaida. You are, you are not Chorazin. You are not Capernaum. Rejoice that you are known now by his name, that you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. For that's been accomplished at great cost. The shedding of the blood of his son. And that's been accomplished at the action of great love. For God so loved us, he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And isn't it the case that so often the church is looking for the miraculous? We want to know where the age of miracles has gone. Why, why isn't people raised from the dead anymore? Why don't we see healings anymore? Why, why in all of these supernatural things that we read about in the book of Acts, we don't see them as frequently as it seems to us that they were happening in the book of Acts? It's because we've got something greater to rejoice in. And our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. This means, beloved Christian, I don't care what's going on in your life. Every morning when you wake up and you're reminded that your name is written in heaven, you've got reason to rejoice all day long. All day long. Kids ain't acting right. My name's written in heaven. <laughs> Husband ain't acting right. My name's written in heaven. I don't know about that rascal, but my name's written in heaven. 
Wife, wife ain't acting right. My name written in heaven. It doesn't matter what's going on in your neighborhood, in your life, in your home. It doesn't even matter what's going on in the struggles in your own heart. Your name is written in heaven. Rejoice. Rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. Be glad. Be thankful. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. If I was a hooping preacher, I'd have y'all up right now. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven, number one. But then he gives a second reason to rejoice, beginning in verse 21. In that same hour, Jesus himself rejoiced in the Holy Spirit, saying, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal it. Verse 22 is startling to some people. It's scary to some people. They don't like it. That we can't know God apart from the Father revealing the Son, and the Son revealing the Father, and the Son chooses to whom He reveals it to. That troubles some people. But the burden of the text is verse 21. <laughs> rejoice for the things that make Jesus rejoice. And Jesus rejoices that God has hidden these things about how it is we come into heaven, how it is we come to him. That he's hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. You know what this means, beloved? If you believe in Christ... It's as if the father took his own fingers and opened your eyelids. He, he opened your eyes to see Jesus. And, and he blew out whatever scales, whatever flex, whatever glaucoma, whatever was blocking your vision. He, he removed the, the blockage of sin so that you and I could see Jesus. He, he touched us, as the old songwriter said. He touched us and he, and he opened our eyes and he caused us to see. We were once blind, but now we see. And what's the difference? God revealed himself to us through his son, and the son revealed the father to us. If you can see like that, you ought to rejoice. You ought to rejoice. The most significant spiritual problem in the world is spiritual blindness. That people don't see what you have been given to see. It's not reason to think hard thoughts about God. That's reason to fall on your knees and to praise God. Rejoice, for you can see. You can see Jesus, and in him see the glory of God. Number three, rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Rejoice because you can see Jesus. Number three, rejoice as Jesus does in verse 20, 23, turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Not only do you see, but praise God and rejoice with God that we live in an era that the prophets looked forward to. And we have been given the privilege of living in the aftermath of what they hoped for. They, they look forward 
vaguely, blindly toward a, a cross and a salvation that they couldn't describe. We look backward and we see the cross and we see the resurrection and we see the Son. We have seen more, beloved. You have seen more if you're a Christian and you read God's Word. You have seen more than even Elijah and Moses and all the prophets of old. They look forward to seeing what you see. We live in a tremendous era. We live in a tremendous era of privilege where all of the revelation of God is complete and has been given to us so that we might know the mind of the Lord and what he's up to and what he's done and know it in its fullness in his son. Rejoice that you weren't born in the Old Testament. Rejoice that you weren't born before the days of Moses. Rejoice that you weren't born in the days of the judges. Rejoice that you, you didn't come into the world when God's revelation was incomplete. You came into the world when he finished speaking and when he said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, believe in him. And he made things plain to you. And he gave you insider knowledge. You see there in, in the verse 23, is it? He took them aside privately. <laughs> it's as if that's what he's done with us too. He sort of grabbed us by the coattail and pulled us aside. I said, let me show you something. Not even prophets have seen this. Not even seers have seen this. But you, my child, I want to show it to you. I want to show you my glory and show you my gospel. Why? So that you would rejoice. So that your heart would be glad. So that you would overflow in delight. That's the fifth and great thing. Let us rejoice together. In Christ our King. Let's conclude in two minutes, I promise, with this final point. What's the aim of all of this? Well, I wonder if you saw it repeated. It's expressed a couple of different ways. And I've already made comments about it, but I want to draw it out for us so we see it clearly. Christ is instructing us in our attitudes. He's instructing us in our action. And he wants us to see very clearly what our aim is as Christians following him as a church looking to reach our neighborhood. It's in verse 48 of chapter 9 and verse 16 of chapter 10. It gives us the sort of positive and the negative statement of it. Verse 48, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Now watch the negative statement in verse 16. The one who hears you hears me. And notice this. And the one who rejects me, rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. And you see there, sort of laid out for us two ways to live. We receive the messenger and therefore receive Christ. And we receive the God who sent Christ to redeem us. We reject the messenger and therefore we reject Christ and we reject the God who sent Christ to rescue us. That's it. There's no in-between. There's no third way. There's no middle way. We either believe the gospel and therefore we come into a living, loving relationship with Christ and as a consequence we come into that same loving relationship with God or we reject the gospel, reject Jesus, and reject God. The aim, beloved, is that we would have people do the first. Receive Christ and receive God. And so live. And once again, if you're here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, we beg of you, 
Consider Jesus. And don't just consider him intellectually. Consider your own soul in light of what Jesus taught and did. Is not sin real? Do you not discern it in your own heart? Do not thoughts of sin travel through your own mind? Do we even have to look beyond ourselves to know the reality of sin? And then we open the paper and we turn on the news and, and we see it on display, don't we? Someone once said the only doctrine of Christianity for which we have empirical evidence is sin. Isn't that true? And ask yourself, why are you bothered by your sin? Oh, I know that we're not always bothered. But ask yourself, don't you see how you work to not be bothered? How you press down the sense of guilt and shame in order to sort of pursue the sin? And, and, and aren't we bothered because at some deep level we know this is wrong? And doesn't wrong mean something to us? Even if we don't know how we came to know it's wrong, we know that it's wrong and we shouldn't do it and we shouldn't desire it. And when we let ourselves think about it, we feel bad about ourselves and bad about what we do. You know what that's called? It's called conviction. Don't push that aside. Let it work in your heart and your mind. Be convinced of what you already know, what we all already know, that our sin is wrong, that our sin is shameful, that it makes us guilty before God. And that the answer is not simply to sort of press down the knowledge of our sin. The answer actually is to let that knowledge bubble up and to ask ourselves, what can we do about it? And maybe you've already asked that question and you've began to see something even more troubling. You've not been able to escape your sin. Everywhere you go, there your sin is with you. And you have tried many times to live differently. You've set out to do, to sort of build new habits. And you've, you've read books about how to improve yourself. And, and you've talked with friends about not repeating this pattern of, of sin again. Maybe you've gotten to the point where you're aware that your sin is stronger than you are. And it won't leave you alone just because you've asked. Or just because you've tried. I want to offer you something. A way to be free of the power of sin and the guilt of sin. The way to be increasingly victorious over sin. And on one day, to be absolutely free from sin. The offer is this. You let Christ pay the penalty for your sin. And you let Christ provide before God a perfect righteousness which you don't have. You trust him to do both of those things. To take away God's judgment for your sin and to provide a perfect righteousness that pleases God. And you put your faith in him who was crucified and resurrected for you. And you follow him. And you trust that he will increasingly 
free you from sin and make you new. That's what God offers you. God never makes an offer or a promise he doesn't keep. If you would admit your sin and be free from it, don't reject Christ. Receive him and receive God with him and he will make you new. If you want to know more about how to do that, talk with any of the pastors after the service. Talk with the Christian friend who brought you. Keep coming to hear God's word. Christ will set you free if you trust in him. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we pray very simply in accord with your word that you would adjust our attitudes, that you would move us to action, and that you would keep our aim clear. As a church family, Lord, we want to be those who are marked by humility and cooperation. We want to be marked by mercy And Father, we want very much to be marked by sacrifice for your name, knowing how you have sacrificed yourself for us. And we want very much to go meekly, to pray earnestly, to seek peace. We want very much to preach boldly. And oh God, would you give us the joy of your salvation. Renew in us great and deep gladness that our names are written in heaven. And Father, we want very much that that joy of having a name, our names written in heaven would be shared with many, many, many more people from our neighborhood and around the world. So even this morning, give that joy for the first time to someone who repents and believes. Give them the joy of your salvation, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.